0: Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to another Empire Podcast special and boy, this one is special. Alan Silvestri is one of the finest composers in the movie business and has been for about four decades and counting now. In that time, he has scored every single one of Robert Zemeckis' movies – since they first started working together with 1984's Romancing the Stone. His way with a melody and muscular percussion has driven the likes of action movies like Predator, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Van Helsing, while he's shown off his playful side on the likes of Mouse Hunt and The Quick and the Dead. And in his time composing three of the four Avengers movies, he came up with one of the greatest superhero themes, if not movie themes, full stop. You know the one. Da, 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 that one. And now he's reunited with Robert Semeckis and Bob Gale, the two Bobs who co wrote Back to the Future for Back to the Future, the musical on which Sylvester co wrote all the songs with Glenn Ballard and wrote a new score that plays upon the score he wrote for the 1985 classic. The show debuted in Manchester last year before the pandemic and will soon hopefully be wending its merry way to London at precisely 88 miles per hour. It's scheduled to arrive here in August. But if you want a sneak peek, there's a very special BFI at home event called Back to the Future from screen to stage, which is available to watch for free on the BFI YouTube page on Thursday, 29th of April at 7pm BST. That will feature a panel comprising Bob Gale, Alan Silvestri, and the cast of the show, including the new Marty McFly, Ollie Dobson. That man has some pretty big lifesavers to fill. So, when I was offered the chance ahead of that panel to talk to Alan Silvestri, I made like a tree and took it, recruiting fellow Silvestri fan and man who actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to film music, Mr. Amon Warman, to join me. And I was glad we did, because the interview was an absolute joy, with Alan telling us all about the Back to the Future musical, His working relationship and his friendship with Bob Semeckis, which has spawned obviously music for the likes of Forrest Gump and Castaway as well. How he became one of the few composers who's not John Williams to score a Steven Spielberg movie in Ready Player One, and much, much more. We were meant to chat for about 45 minutes. We ended up talking for an hour and a half, and what you're about to hear is pretty much uncut. And yes, because it's us, because it's the Empire Podcast, because we can't go more than five minutes without talking about Avengers Endgame, we finally, finally talk about portals with the man whose incredible music helped make that sequence so goddamn iconic. Okay, so that's enough of me prattling on. Here we go, Amon and I talking to the one, the only, Alan Silvestri. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by one of the most legendary composers in the business. He's the man behind the likes of Back to the Future, Predator, Avengers, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame. Not Avengers Age of Ultron, but we might get to that. We might get to that. (coughs) Uh, And of course, he's heavily involved in the Back to the Future stage show, the musical that is going to be uh, launching very, very, very soon. We are delighted to be joined by Mr. Alan Silvestri. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. I you know, I, I thought Alan, I was going to start listing all the movies that you have composed the score for and then thought we'd be here all year if I started doing that. but it's, <laughs> it is, it is it's quite, quite an few- illustrious list. It really is. Yeah
1: it's uh i've been very fortunate been doing it a long time and so that that list has grown
0: <laughs> and uh, over time is it one of the things where uh you feel that you are improving with age and uh, improving with experience as well do you feel you're a much better composer now than you were back when you started
1: i do i do and uh and there are probably a, a number of reasons for that one of one of them of, of course is just amount of time you've logged, uh, you know, the experience with so many different kinds of projects. Um, But another one is, uh, you know, I I still have the jitters uh, when I start a project, even after all this time. And the only thing that seems to have ever helped me when I get the butterflies and and, am concerned about beginning is, I had this chat with myself where I go look at all this stuff you've done. See, <laughs> you can do this. You've done this before. Look at you did that. And it kind of actually still helps get me to, you know, kind of be comfortable with just beginning. So that has certainly improved with age. I just have more more things to to reference like that. And and sh- you know, again, Having worked with so many different people on so many different kinds of things, there's just a lot of experience in, in there.
0: And is that something that you uh, you did when you started working on the Back to the Future musical? Because this is something that you have done before. So you have the experience right there. It's there for everybody to see and hear. It-
1: it is. And, and, you know, you bring up, uh, you know, you lead us in a direction that's very interesting. When we started uh, our our very first uh, meetings with uh, Back to the Future, the musical, um, Glenn Ballard had done a real musical. He had done Ghost at that time. And so, Um, We had someone in the group who had actually logged the time in the real experience. But uh, for Bob Gale, Bob Z, and for myself, we had not done this. And I remember the talk with with Bob Gale about that. And he said, hey, Al, here's the thing. Remember when we hadn't done a movie and (laughs) we had to go do that first movie, he said, this is the same thing. So we haven't done a musical. So here it is. You know, something has to be the first. So let's, you know, it never stopped us in our movie path. Let's not let it stop us as we investigate the possibilities of Back to the Future as a musical.
0: <laughs> so so where did you start?
1: We started with, you know, the place where probably any project Like this should start. We started with lunch. And (laughs) (laughs) we sat around a table, and it was the four of us. And, you know, there had been a phone call hey, we should just talk about this and just have a nice lunch. And so we had a fantastic lunch, and it was the four of us um, at Bob Z's office. And it really, it really began by, um, hey, what does everybody think? What does everybody think? Is this possible? Um, how would we do it? What you know? What does everybody think? And we just sat there and talked, and I think we walked out of that first lunch with a um, a commitment to have another lunch. <laughs> 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 and that was as really as far as we wanted to go. And, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the overriding trajectory as a result of that was, hey, you know, we have this story that has kind of been proven over time. We know people love these characters. We know the movie works. Um, so one of the big differences will be the music. So, you know, the mandate was Glenn and Alan, you guys go off now and start writing. And it wasn't there was no more direction at this point than that. It wasn't, you know, go write something for this or go, you know, look at this moment in the film. It was just like you guys go and start doing things. And that's what we did. And then we booked another lunch. And Glenn and I brought some things in, you know, we had mocked him up, Glenn's saying everything, I'm doing all the tracks on the box and, you know, we we wrote some things. And uh, some of that material act- actually after 12 years or so has survived into the present form of the show. So it was an amazing, you know, f- free way to, to begin the investigation. And over time, Um, Even in that second lunch, uh, we all kind of smiled and looked around the room and went, this could work, you know, channeling Doc Brown, this could work. (laughs) So that's really kind of how it started.
2: That is amazing. I'm curious to know how many lunches you had in the making of the score.
1: I don't have an exact number, but it was lots
2: of lunches.
1: It was lots of lunches, and uh, and for a long time, a long time, that was kind of how we worked, and it was amazing because um, you know we we um, we were starting to see how things felt, how directions worked um and then there was all this other stuff to to begin to understand how does the theater um as a as a a world actually work in terms of how does the show get put put together um so all of it had to be uh learned in a sense because it was our first time And so but but lots of lunches and and it was always fun to to walk in there and hit the button and play things for um, the Bobs and uh, and see their reactions. And uh, but with every successive lunch, you know, was just confirming the fact that this is going to work. You know, we just have to we just have to keep going.
2: So prior to doing this musical. When was the last time you had revisited your Back to the Future score or the Back to the Future as a movie?
1: Um, You know, I'm trying to think this. I think we're talking about 12 years ago now. And so I hadn't visited the movie at all. In the course of the development of the musical, this idea of Back to the Future in concert appeared. Mm. So that was what, maybe five years ago. And that was a fascinating journey for me because it was a real revisit to the actual film. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, are we talking about interesting, fun and terrifying things that happen along the way? Or is that... Is that all in bounds, Chris? Again. That's fine. Every,
0: every, everything, everything is on the table, Alan. Everything's okay. on the table.
1: Well, I will say, um, so, you know, to to answer um, your question, I, I'm on, um, I got a call um, and it might have been from Mike Gorfane, my agent. And they were starting to do these in concert presentations where you would take a film and you would you would perform the score live, in a in a concert hall with the orchestra, and so I got this call from Mike and uh, and Jamie Richardson, and they said, Al, so we've got this idea we want to talk to you about. And I said, Yeah, what's that, guys? And he said, We want to talk to you about Back to the Future in concert. And I said, Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And they said, Yeah, but there's there's one little thing. That, that we need to talk to you about?" I said, yeah, what's that? They said, well, there's not enough music in the movie <laughs> to do an in concert. The first cue comes in like 25 minutes into the film, and we can't have a magnificent orchestra sitting on stage. And, you know, if there's not enough music in the movie. I said, yeah. So they said, so, Um, how would you feel about calling Bob Z and Bob G about writing more music for the movie? (laughs) I thought, you're kidding, right? (laughs) I said, you know, they've been told for 30 years now that they've made a perfect, almost perfect movie. (laughs) And, uh, and so now, I'm going to go and and talk to them. They said, well, look, if you're not comfortable, fine. So as it turned out, I happened to be uh, within the next couple of days having dinner with both the guys. And um, so I said, I'm just, you know, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to probably wait until after the Caesar salad. Um, You know, I don't want to jump the gun on this. Let's wait until we, you know, tell her. See, we get back to the meal motif all the time, don't we? (laughs) So so the Caesar salad goes by, and I don't really know what the reaction's going to be. And I tell them quickly, hey, here's the thing, guys. There's an opportunity to do this, um, but there needs to be 20 more minutes of music in the movie. It's like it was scripted. They both responded by saying that's fantastic do whatever you have to do that was it (laughs) do whatever you have to do and and it was fabulous because they both under understood that the movie's the movie this is like a new medium now so now our baby our movie has to now be dressed appropriately for the concert hall so do whatever you have to do and in, in an interesting way that same kind of openness from the guys um, traveled right across to back to the future, the musical, Um, their, their spirit behind it was always, you know, all bets are off. We have to do whatever we have to do Mm. for our baby. So our baby's going to the stage now, or our baby's going to the concert hall, just do it, whatever you have to do, take care of it. (laughs) <laughs> um so so they were completely fine with the idea of adding music. So now there's music all through the opening title sequence of Back to the Future. It was all silent in the original movie and we just heard the clocks. Um mm. so it was a big revisit uh to Back to the Future for me and I learned lots of interesting things. And you know when it was first presented You know, the reaction from people was, wow, that's so amazing. You're going to get to go back and write new music for Back to the Future. And yeah, 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 it's going to be fantastic, right? I get to do that and revisit it. And so we start going down the road of looking at what we need to do. And I basically didn't write any new music because... (laughs) Anything you did that was outside of the tone and the motifs and all of that sensibility, anything different from the original film would have been a disaster. And it turned out that the real mission was going to be, you've got to add 20 minutes of music, but you've got to make it feel like it was always in the movie. So even someone who's seen the movie a bunch of times will go into the concert hall and they'll go, oh yeah, yeah. I always loved that when that was there. And I yeah, I was always there like that. It it, it had to be there, right? I mean, it had to be there like that. (laughs) So that's, so in a way it was a revisit to back to the future. In another way, it was, it was a real eye opener about how, how the identity of that film was so powerful that you dare not, uh, in certain ways, go in there and meddle with it. Very interesting though, you know. So that happened in the middle of the development of the musical. So it was an interesting reconnect for me to the original film, for sure.
0: So, how do you approach that for the musical? For example, when I think about Back to the Future, I think about your from a musical point of view. Right. Uh, I think about your score. I think about the the really interesting mix of songs on there as well. So you have the you know those fifty standards. You have mm-hmm. obviously what you know, Hugh Lewis and the, and the News did as well. You have the sort of more modern power pop stuff going on as, as well. Right. And so right. you're approaching the musical from you know, the the viewpoint of Co-writing songs with Glenn, right. co-writing and, and writing as well, score for the musical as well, and mm-hmm. and, and your orchestral score. So, mm-hmm. is it a big melange, Alan? Is it a big mix? Yeah. How did you how did you approach that?
1: Well, you know, it's it's um, it. Your question reminds me, if I might di- diverge for a moment about mm-hmm. the pain and suffering we went through with Forrest Gump. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one week Bob would call and say. Al, get ready. This movie's just going to have so much score and it's going to take your breath away. And then a week later, he'd call and go, you know what? I don't think there's any score in this movie. It's all going to be songs. And we suffered theoretically. And then the day we got to spot the movie and we're sitting there together, it's like it all did itself. Um, You just do what's appropriate. So um, we did have some. some thoughts going into the musical and this was collective this is with glenn and the bobs and me we thought well the yui songs are iconic power of love and back in time so we got to think those are going to be in the musical in some way and then we talked about johnny Be good we don't know if we can pull it off live on stage but we have to look certainly at those three things as being part of the musical um, until further notice. Um, then of course we had, we had the score as something that pre-existed and it had its motifs and thematic things, um, but you know, a credit to, to the Bobs, it's like no boundaries guys. You do whatever you feel. If you feel you need to write a completely new song for a situation that doesn't reference anything that we've ever heard or connected to Back to the Future, you just do that. And so there was always that freedom. And so Glenn and I just worked our way through the the uh, the, the movie, really, um, because, as you know, I didn't know. Did you guys see the show in Manchester by any chance? No, it's it's, it's one of
0: the few times in my life Uh, I've been jealous of Manchester. Oh, oh,
1: man. Oh, well, okay. I think you're going to have fun when you do get to see it. What you will see is it's back to the future. I mean, um, that was another thing we we came to early on. Um, You know, in the very beginning, um, there were these ideas floating around as we're brainstorming. And, you know... Wicked had been this incredible success, uh, and it's a fantastic show. And it had this interesting little angle on this famous um, story. And so then you're kind of looking at, you know, was that something, should we be looking at some kind of angle or point of view on Back to the Future, uh, and 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 so I remember the lunch <laughs> when, <laughs> when when Bob Z and Bob Gale basically said in unison, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! We have a really strong story." and a strong storyline. And we have really strong characters. So we don't have to reinvent that wheel. We need to find a way to tell that live on stage. So um, again, Glenn and I were really free of once in a while, we would use a little motif from the score as a starting point um, for a song but we were free to do whatever we felt was going to be uh, a way to help tell the story of back to the future it was it was amazing the process
2: i love how much freedom they gave you uh, to do your thing here i imagine it's different from film to film and from director to director when you're working on various projects how do you like a director to speak to you about music do you like a director to really understand music and break it down? Or does it more of a feel thing that you prefer? How do you like a director to speak to you when you're composing?
1: Well, you know, that's, that's a fantastic question. And it's one of Bob Z's, one of Bob Z's um, favorite um, recollections of our early encounter. We met on Romancing the Stone. And Bob was struggling with that very question and very concerned about it. And of course, I just want to know what to do. And Hmm. and, you know, but as a director, he really suffered with how do I do this? You know, I'm not a musician and I'm not, you know. And we we had some, I'm gonna just say they were, they were never bad, but there was kind of an awkwardness. Because, first of all, he's so respectful and so amazing, and doesn't want to you know say anything wrong, but he's also he's also the authority on his movie. I mean, anything about his movie comes through him, and so he had he had an epiphany actually when we were kind of struggling for communication. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, he goes, I think I figured this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's that, Bob? He said, I need to talk to you like an actor. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly right. You not need to talk to me like you talk to one of your actors. You don't go in there and do line readings for them. You don't go in there and and, you know, kind of like hold their arm up like this. And he said, you talk to them about what your intentions are, what you're hoping to accomplish in the scene and how you're feeling, the feeling should come through the performer, but you're not there kind of, you know, say, oh, there should be a clarinet in the middle register. You don't have to do that. And so, my most successful communications with directors have been when they talk to me uh, like I was an actor. And I have to add to that that my um, respect for actors has grown um, exponentially as, as I've, I've started to experience how I really do work. Um, I've never acted. But I do know that if I sit at my spot for six hours and uh, I'm watching Hawkeye have to let go of Natasha and let her die um, and hear him scream and see the agony they go through, and I'm doing that for six hours, at the end of the day, I need to put my head in a, in a, in a, in a, in a pub of cold water and just kind of like decompress. It takes a lot out of you. I can only imagine what an actor goes through doing a difficult emotional scene. Um, So anyway, that's, that's how it shakes out for me. You know, talk to me about your movie. And the other thing I would add too is, you know, the biggest communicator in that process is the movie the director made. So, if you're looking at a scene, you know, that's going to be 99% of the communication of what the director wants to tell me as the composer. Now, there are little things that, you know, that are helpful. For instance, I'm going to just make up a scene. So, you've got a scene and there's a dog running through a field trying to get to, uh, you know, to a stick a dynamite you know before it goes off um so it can it can put the you know the the fuse out and so you're watching the scene and the Mm -hmm. director could turn to you and go darn i could never get the dog to run fast enough that day (laughs) so is there anything you could do to help us feel but again it's talking like to a performer is there anything you could do that would help us feel the dogs running faster well actually there are things you can try and so yeah. if you have that kind of feedback um, then you know to look in that direction so it's a very kind of liquid um liquid uh, communication and some people are are like anything else. Some people are much better at it than others, and sometimes people really back away and they don't even comment. And sometimes they're very very specific. So every 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 case is unique.
0: And how has that relationship changed? Because obviously you and you and Bob Sameka have worked together so much over the years. And how has that relationship changed with with him?
1: Well, look, it's, it's, um, this is before all else, this is a relationship and it's a 35 year relationship and you know, my wife and I have been married 43 years. Um, and you know, there, it takes certain things to log that time of kind of time in a, in a relationship. And there have there have to be things that have been learned. And there has to be a kind of love, not even a kind of, there has to be love between people to have a relationship um, that spans that kind of time. And when you're talking about the movie business, um, the amount of pressure on somebody like Robert Zemeckis every time out is will stop your heart. And so, you know, we always have our relationship in the midst of very tense difficult times um and so um clearly we have developed a body of knowledge kind of like a lexicon Mm -hmm. a vocabulary um and bob always refers to it as our shorthand um because he can literally say, you know, you remember that thing you did, you know, remember that thing you did when she was coming out of the door in that in that movie? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. For some reason, I'm thinking we should look at something like that. I mean, that just saved us like four days of trying to explain ourselves. It's like I know exactly what he means. Yeah. And so we have all of that. Um, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we have times where I miss the mark for him um Hmm. and and that still happens it doesn't happen like it it used to when when um I was younger and you know Bob Bob was very um he was very supportive of me from the very beginning and I call him my mentor he's a year younger than me but he's my mentor (laughs) because I had a lot of growing up to do (laughs) and he kind of, he kind of just, you know, helped me through my youth. Um, But it's interesting because in the old days I would come in with a piece of music and it would usually be something that was very self-centered. And, you know, now uh, I'm, I'm doing something. I'm not, I've, I've kind of forgotten what my job is, which is to help him tell his story. <laughs> and he always, again, he's so respectful and lovely. I go out with the orchestra and I do this big thing and I'd be so thrilled. And I'd walk into the control room and it usually was something like this. He'd go, ow, that's fantastic. Um, but I don't get it. <laughs> and. And what you learned as time went on was when when Robert Zavekis said, I don't get it, that was code for whatever that was, it's not going to be in my movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it never was in the movie. So when I was young and, you know, ignorant, I would start selling. Well, Bob, let me, maybe if I speed it up or maybe if I did this and it's like, nothing ever worked he didn't get it it was just like so now i mean that hasn't happened in that way for a very long time but for a long time when it did happen that just meant get the broom move on to the next cue and just start completely fresh Uh, because whatever you did to change it um he still wasn't going to get it, wasn't going to be in his movie. So it's, you know, the relationship has, in terms of that kind of communication, it really has grown over time. And, and it's fantastic. I think we both really enjoy the trust that comes from a long relationship together like that.
2: A number of composers that I've talked to have spoken of the importance of making sure their scores as a whole can be listened to and enjoyed outside of the projects they're attached to. Is that something you think about when you're composing? How conscious of you are you of that?
1: Absolutely not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I can't even, I, I, um, well, look, a lot of composers write music outside of film. Um, they, they write, concert pieces, they do all kinds of things, Uh, at least so far, I don't do that. And I don't think of that at all. I think of, I think of what is going to happen in this scene, that's next, that I have to, I have to do. Um, And that's as far as I get. And I work my way through the film. Sometimes I'm lucky enough. Gump was one of those times where I got to work from the opening of the movie straight through. Mm -hmm. Um, But many times I have to jump in and start somewhere in the middle. You know, Avengers one was that kind of situation. I, I had a very specific mission on that film to come up with something thematic That was going to be the signature, hopefully, um, piece of music for the Avengers. And I wound up going to, and I've done this before. I also did this with Polar Express. I then go, okay, what's the one place in this whole movie where if there's a theme, and if we can play it out full on, where is that spot? And in the Avengers, it was that iconic shot of them in the in the town square where they're all kind of shoulder to shoulder looking off you know in the middle of a battle, nobody's moving what how's that gonna work <laughs> and that's the place I went to for the uh the Avengers theme, and you know polar Express it's like. I have to I have to be there in the, the you know, in the North Pole with Santa. So, you know, it's 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 interesting, but it's always driven by the movie and the scenes in the film. And then it's great, you know, to to then start to put together the soundtrack album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, I I I I. I Sometimes it's what I love about, and I mostly try to do this having the soundtrack album in sequence is that you can then go and actually revisit the film if you put the soundtrack on. So, for instance, Endgame is very much like that, and Infinity War. You can put the soundtrack album on, and it's like you're watching the movie again. Mm -hmm. Um, Ready Player One. I remembered how much fun it was to send that soundtrack album to Mr. Spielberg, because for the most part, we were able to build that soundtrack album from the beginning of the film, all the way through to the end. And it was like, it's like an audible way to experience the movie. So, you know, I have to figure over time now that if I, do my job the way i do it then the soundtrack album will hopefully capture the film but i don't think of that uh as i'm as i'm working not at all i can't even imagine thinking of that
0: i want to go back uh briefly if we can to um to the creation of the avengers theme where i think you did something that uh I I I thought had was impossible which was you created a great modern superhero theme. I mean how conscious going into that were you of things like John Williams Superman theme and not replicating that coming up with your own thing but it has to sound brassy and heroic and noble. So where do you even right. start with something like that?
1: Well, I've thought of John Williams um ever since I I Got the first opportunity to score a film. Uh, (laughs) I just think he's uh, the sun and the moon and the stars. And um, as an artist, as a composer, as a human being, he's magnificent. And and what he has done for the art of film scoring in my lifetime um, is unequaled. And yes, he has demonstrated. Um, the power of a theme in film. And he, you know, he has demonstrated what the potential elements of these great heroic, powerful themes are. Um, so, look, I've grown up in, in his, in the culture that um, has been um, really um Dominated by John Williams. So, that being said, here's the mission. Um, so, you know, the Avengers are shoulder to shoulder. We're in the middle of a battle and nobody's moving. <laughs> what? So, we've got a problem here now. <laughs> you know, it, we can't just do a needle drop and start playing a tune. What are we doing? Nobody's moving. So, that absolutely did inform my approach to the theme. First of all, there's something about simplicity um, and a theme. And and I think that has to do with a number of things. A simple theme also allows for a tremendous amount of compositional um, treatment as you go forward, if if it's a simple sequence of notes, it will remain recognizable mm. with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of moods, all kinds of things. For instance, when Doc at the end of Back to the Future, you know, has dis- discovers that Marty has successfully made it back to the future and he does that little dance. With the flames, we, je- we have a solo muted trumpet, just go beam, ba bump bump, bump, End of story. <laughs> you don't need anything else. I mean, that's where a theme really is, is able to, to work for you. So I knew I needed something for the Avengers that was that simple and clear now i couldn't you know i'm trying to think as as i'm doing this so there they are um, you know h- i got to keep some motor alive somehow and that's where that string be da 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 there's this constant pulse and motor yeah. all the way through the avengers um, theme So then, you know, you start putting these elements together. I knew it was going to be this, you know, over-the-top, big, brassy um, kind of, uh, but I've done a lot of that, you know, so that wasn't (laughs) new to me. Um, Back to the Future was that. Yeah. And it was a similar mission, you know, back to the future looked like, you know, looked like it was shot in, in you know, like where the Beave, you know, where, you know, where we used to watch the beeve you know, in, in a little suburban quiet street. It was like, and I remember, I don't know if you ever heard this story. The first time I met Bob to talk about that, he was shooting in a church. He was shooting that big fish under the sea and oh, champion yeah. under the sea thing. Yeah. And he he turns to me he's like so busy and he just raises his hands up and he goes ow ow. It's got to be big. Got to be big. Got to be big. And so back to the future was this kind of big heroic but we never had shots to support that. But what we did have was a great heroic story about friendship and and, you know, that clock ticking. So it kind of worked. So in Avengers, you know, it had to be, you know, it had to, uh, it had to capture something of the spirit of what the Avengers meant. Just like the opening of Forrest Gump. Bob said, Al, this has to essentialize the entire film.
3: It's no like, pressure. You know,
1: so yeah, so just go do that. I literally got a stomach ache. I had to drive all the way home from Montecito. I could hardly you know I'm like driving like this. It's like ha, 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 you know and the theme came out in five minutes. Um, you know it, so that was good. Uh, but yeah, it has to so those kinds of themes have to, they have to essentialize something. And that the Avengers, it seemed to work. And by the way, when I was working with Joe and Anthony on Infinity War and uh, Endgame, one of the first things the guys talked about was, we have to be real, really careful, judicious might've been mm-hmm. the word they used about how we use that. Mm-hmm. And and because we can wear out our welcome so fast if we just think we're going to go, oh, yeah, do some of that. Oh, yeah, do that. Yeah, that'll work. That always works. So we were very aware of the fact that you can really overdo a tool like that uh, or a spice. You have to save it for the moment and then you just have to let it go. I mean, just really let it go. So we had fun with, you know, that creatively. It's like, we, we, it was like this big thing sitting next to us all the time. It's like, so do we, do we use it? No, nah, no, no, not, not yet. Let's, let's wait. Nah, no. It's like, well, how about now? Can we, could we do, can we do some of it? No, no, no. Can't, can't use it. Cheap shot, cheap shot. Can't do it. They'll kill us. The fans will kill us. But when we give it to them, you just like blow the roof off of it. So that was fun. That was fun. Knowing we had that resource from the first Avengers, it was fun. You know, it's like, do we bring it out now? No, we don't bring it out. We wait. We wait. We wait.
2: You waited for the perfect moment in Infinity War. I can attest to that because you use it when Thor comes to Wakanda and that moment is incredible. Um, It's it's wild. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, we've had had Back to the Future as a movie. We've had Back to the Future as a concert. We're now going to have Back to the Future as a musical. Mm -hmm. You've had an incredible filmography. If you could Mm -hmm. have another movie in your filmography as a musical, as a concert, or both with new music from Alan Silvestri, what movie would it be?
1: Well, that's, you know, that's a very interesting question. Um, You know, we're in the middle of working on uh, Pinocchio with Bob Z and Tom Hanks is Geppetto and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Jiminy Cricket. Cynthia Revo is the Blue Fairy. Um, And Glenn and I, at the moment, as we go through the process, have seven new songs in Pinocchio. And it's kind of a natural, uh, depending on how it all goes, I don't think the film is released until the the holiday season, not this year, but the next year. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm gonna, you know, hypothesize (laughs) and say, that could wind up being something that that would really be fun. Um, in terms of in concert, there are some other things that might, I, I, for instance, I've always thought Night at the Museum could be a really fun in concert, because it would appeal to a young audience. You could do some great concerts in the famous museums around the world. Um, it's a really fun movie story. And I think it could make a great in concert kind of presentation. I know, for instance, a lot of people love Father of the Bride, Um, you know, in the spring during wedding season, everybody. (laughs) So, you know, there's all these kinds of fun things, you know, Um, we're doing Polar Express in concert. We did one performance uh, in Vancouver then the pandemic hit and we were shut down, but that's already well on its way. And that will be out there Um, probably I'm thinking this holiday season, it depends, you know, those things are booked so far in advance for orchestras. Um, So there are a couple of them. I think that would be fun. I mean, why wouldn't it be crazy to do Endgame or Infinity War?
2: I mean, Oh, but I took it so fast. Yeah.
3: <laughs> the, the music never
1: stops. I think there's I think there's some interesting difficulties with the length of the film because of the way rehearsal times go and stagehands, you know, their work days. And oh yeah. I, I think, you know, if if it, it, it's it's difficult. Um, but boy, I think, you know, I think. Those movies, you know, could just be outrageous in a big, you know, concert hall uh, because the projection is always magnificent. The mix is great. I mean, like you're really watching the movie and you're looking at this amazing orchestra up there doing it live in front of you. I mean, it's it's a breathtaking peak behind the curtain of filmmaking in a way you know because people don't realize oh my god look look at that they had to have done that (laughs) well yeah you know they they actually did that 35 years ago i'm back to the future we had this enormous orchestra and they played all of that just like that folks never get to to experience filmmaking um like that you know so that's a pretty great pretty great idea
0: Alan, I have to say, I, I, Amon and I would both be there for Infinity War and Endgame, even if you just had to, you know, have you and the orchestra lowered from the ceiling every now and yeah. again just to play a cue or two. Then I, I would be, I'd be okay with that. If you came in for The Real Hero or Main on End or, or Portals, yeah, then I'd, I'd, yeah, be, yeah. I'd be very happy with that.
1: No, that will, well, we'll see. You know, it could wind up happening. It would be fun to do it, though. Absolutely.
0: Um, it's, it's, it's become an inadvertent catchphrase on this podcast that we need to talk about portals. Um, because mm-hmm. we, we love that moment and that, that, that track so much, but we do need to talk about portals with you. Um, mm-hmm. it, what are your memories of, of coming up with, with that cue? Uh, was that again a moment where you go, okay, well, this is it. We have to, this is where the Avengers theme is going to be deployed in all its full grandeur and glory. But also you have this, this opportunity to really build up to it with this different theme as well.
1: Yeah, that was, I, I will tell you that portals had a very kind of evolutionary path. There were things that were tried, and then the filmmakers wanted to go in different directions. They always knew this is based on me hearing the filmmakers talk about that sequence they they always knew that this had to be something really special and it had to it had to really capture this you know this amazing feeling in the film you know this was getting the team back together this this is what the whole thing was really about really the whole the whole avengers event. So things were tried. And then we wound up actually getting quite a ways down the road. And, and I believe it was the the our music editor, um, Steve Durkee, who put a I think it might have been a mock up of something I had done early on into the opening of that sequence. the wakandans are coming out and and you know cap all is lost and he's he's getting this transmission and all and it was it was we all knew it when we saw that that's what has to happen here and then i just started constructing that whole sequence and it kind of did itself i mean We had all kinds of versions that I had prepared for the orchestra. We had all the French horns playing, you know, the portals. And then we had choir singing it and all this. And, And then it's like, wait a second. There's this other version. It's a solo trumpet. Here's that solo <laughs> trumpet thing again, right? go. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, and it's like completely the opposite direction. You know, we have this amazing reveal from the mist of hope and the Wakandans coming to save the day. And it's a solo trumpet. But, you know, you look at the, the portals as a construct it just builds and builds and builds and builds and the key's changing and the orchestration is building. And, you know, we kind of, up to that moment where, you know, Cap says, Avengers. And then of course, we're not going near the next line. (laughs) (laughs) He gets that all on his own. And you know what? I got to tell you, Sandra, my wife Sandra and I were supremely honored by Joe and Anthony Russo and Kevin Feige. They invited us on the bus with them for the Thursday night, um, which was preview night. And what they traditionally do is they, they go to a number of different theaters that night. And sometimes they make appearances and will come on stage and people lose their minds. Um, and sometimes they'll just file in after the lights go out and watch the movie with the audience. So we got to do, we were in four theaters with them on Thursday night. And we watched the whole movie in Westwood, sitting in there. And it was like being in a sporting event. And when... The portals thing, when Cap gets the hammer and he goes, Avengers, they screamed,
3: assemble.
1: <laughs> and you couldn't even hear him say it. The, and they were on their feet screaming. And they screamed for the whole fight. I mean, so so, it's incredible when when you have a fan base that, you know, like Joe and Anthony were so in tune with that fan base, and they—I can't tell you how many times they would say, "We have to take care of the fans here," and it, it didn't mean he; those guys were playing to it. It just meant they—they're going to expect something here. We have to find a way to to honor their their commitment to. To the Avengers, and it was mm. the most respectful, great way the guys always considered their fans. I mean, and sure enough, you know, look at how the fans responded to their films. I mean, it was crazy because um, they were feeling the love, you know, the mm. whole time from the filmmakers. It was great.
0: And you must be pleased, because so much of that, the impact of that scene is 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 down to you. So, whenever you're seeing people react like that in the theater, are you are you proud? Are you delighted? Or are you secretly screaming at them, "Pipe down! You're screaming over my music. <laughs> Show some respect."
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I look. I um, first and foremost, I want to see a smile on my director's face, because that. In a very profound way, I can say that is really my audience. And if my audience doesn't get it, the folks in a movie theater are never going to hear it. So, you know, it starts with with the director um, appreciating and, and feeling that I'm I'm part of some solution not part of some problem and um so i'm already uh, very happy when the director's pleased with it but yeah certainly um you know to sit there that night um and watch the film and the audience physically participate front to back nobody cares if we're not hearing something at any given point. This is just amazing to see folks love the film and love the experience to that degree. There's, there's only good things, you know, about all that. It was, it was remarkable. I have to tell you too, one of the places we went to might've been the first place. We're getting in the bus out at Burbank studios. And I uh, said, We're going to go we're going to go to the I think it was the El Capitan Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Right now, what's been happening is so this is a Thursday at like we're going to walk in the back door of this theater at five o'clock. Right. Mm -hmm. So since Monday at eight thirty, the people in that theater have not left the theater. (laughs) They've been in there watching every Marvel movie in sequence 24 hours a day with like half hour breaks in between films. All their meals they've been eating in the theater, sleeping, they have not left. So when we got there at five o'clock on the Thursday afternoon, Um, Captain Marvel had just finished (laughs) like 30 minutes before we got there. So they had just watched every Marvel film in sequence. And then we are marched out on stage and it's Kevin Feige and Joe and Anthony. It's the it's the writers, Marcus McFeely. It's Jeff Ford and me. And we're standing on this stage. It was unbelievable, you know, for us to be there with fans on that level. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. So, yeah, it's it's um, you know, at some point they'll they'll watch the movie in their home theater or on their iPad, and they'll hear every note. I, I'm not worried about it. We just love <laughs> to see the movie working moment by moment.
2: So. When it comes to that scene and, and that track in particular, sometimes I'll see or I'll read you know, the, the phrase full Silvestri or vintage Silvestri, which I think points to how some immediately recognize your style and your, your hand in your music. Do yeah. you take pride in that? Or does it make you really want to switch things up with future projects?
1: Well, look, sometimes um, you are, you, You're not really switching things up. The very nature of what the film is will, you know, for instance, you know, if I'm doing Father of the Bride or I'm doing uh, reindeer games or I'm doing a soft film or, you know, uh, then I do. I'm always doing what I can uh, to be appropriate and help. That being said, um, and I I really feel this, and I I don't feel it as a compliment, a positive or a negative. Um, We all have our own voice. This voice I'm speaking with right now is my own voice. Mm. The sound of this, the vocabulary, the syntax, the pacing of my words, Everything about it is my voice. So, you know, if we talk on the phone a week from now and you go, hey, is this Al? I go, hey, you're going to go, Yep, yeah, that's Al. That's
2: Al. <laughs> I
1: know. It. That's that's because that's his
2: voice. So I'll give you my number after this and you can do yeah. <laughs> that anytime.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, when they talk about composers, like historically, they call it, you know, they call it their style. So when you, hear, when you hear any of the great composers, if you've spent a little time with the literature, there's a high likelihood you're going to say, oh, that's got to be so-and-so. Oh, that's got to be so-and-so. What is that? Is it because it's the same sequence of notes? Not necessarily. It's their voice. It's how they put music together, how they rhythmically you know, interface with music, how they harmonically um, interface with music. So I clearly have my voice. And if I go back and look at the Doberman gang, which I did when I was 21 years old, and it's like 50 years now, that's my voice. That's my voice. Mm -hmm. If I go look at an episode of Chips, that's my voice. (laughs) (laughs) And it really doesn't matter where we go from there. It could be Forrest Gump. That's my voice everywhere because it is. That's how I put notes together. It's harmonically how I feel things. You know, when I'm working on a scene like like there's that lovely scene in father of the bride where George has his his grandchild and his child in his arms at the same time. And it's this big sequence, you know, because his, his daughter's in labor and his wife's in labor at the same time. I mean, when I'm working on something like this, if I don't have tears in my eyes, I'm completely lost because I am my only metric for whether something is working or not. There is nothing else. You can't go to a book and see, see, they did that in this movie and that works. So just something like that will be good. You know, there is no metric. It's it's me and it's how I'm feeling. If it's terrifying, I have to be feeling this stuff. It gets back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, feeling like all of a sudden I'm a, a performer in the movie. So so, yes. Everything I've ever done and will do will be Alan Silvestri's voice. I can tell you right now, that's, that's how it's going to be. And there's, again, there's no pride in it. There's no um, positive or negative. I don't try to play against it. It's, you know, because even playing against it will be my voice playing against it, I'm not going (laughs) to escape me. That's it. That's all I have, you know? So, so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Now I'm fortunate that my voice, um, has been successful that people, and you know, again, we begin with filmmakers and then audiences have responded to my voice for all this time. That's a miracle. Um, but you know, I'm fortunate in that I'm, I'm fortunate. Um, but that's really kind of how I see that it's, you know, and we all have our voice. Bob Zemeckis has his voice. I've worked on every film since Romancing the Stone. I hear him almost in every cut. Oh, that's how Bob does that. That's how, no, Bob, Bob would not hang around. Any longer on the tail of that shot? No, that's, and it's interesting. I've also gotten to witness over all these years, you know, there's always an assembly of a film. All the footage is put together and, you know, the the editor will assemble a film. And very often I'll see that. And it's like, whoa, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. But then, like, when I see that film a month later, after Bob's been in the cutting room, I always have the same reaction, which is, oh, okay, here it is. It's a Bob Zemeckis film. <laughs> All of a sudden, and it's a Bob Zemeckis film now because it's Bob's voice and he's had his hand on it. Yeah. And an interesting thing about Bob Zemeckis, he, he always says, ah, I'm not a musician. I don't know anything about it. But I can tell you one fascinating thing about Bob that I've watched for 35 years. Um, so we're in the cutting room. And he'll say, you know, roll that, roll that, you know, from here. And he said, I, I just feel something. We got to have to do something in the, in the cut there. And he's watching the cut and he holds his hand up like this in front of the screen. And I don't know if you guys can. Can you see my hand?
3: Yep. Yeah.
1: He holds up his hand like this and I'll move here. And the, the scene's playing. He goes and cut. <laughs> and cut. And it's exactly like a conductor giving a downbeat and one. It's Amazing. exactly. So he conducts his edit. And yeah. his rhythmic sense is magnificent. And it turns out he's incredibly musical.
0: There, there has to be, doesn't there? In directors, yeah. there has to be a musical sense, a rhythmic sense, because quite often you're cutting scenes without music, or at least you know with temp music. But I, I, you know, I've I've seen I've seen sequences without music before, and I, I yeah, my mind is blown about how they they cut that together.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Bob is is intensely musical, and you know, if you are sensitive to his rhythmic sense you just follow his movie he he will lead you down the right path you just have to listen to his his movie it's it's fantastic
0: earlier on you mentioned working with Steven Spielberg and you worked with him on Ready Player 1 obviously and right. there you get this this fun little game as well where you're referencing your own back to the future score <laughs> as well but right. but going into that talking about Retaining your voice, how much was there a balance, or how much was there a war inside yourself between retaining that Alan Silvestri voice and knowing that this is one of the few Steven Spielberg films that John Williams hasn't scored? So, do you do a John Williams impression? How do you how do you balance both sides of that, or was that even a discussion for you?
1: You know, the way that project came to me clearly, you will if you're human you will have this, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, you'll have that moment. Yeah. I mean, clearly, again, you wouldn't be human if you didn't. Yeah. The back to the future things, of course, were easy um, because they were back to the future. And Mr. Spielberg didn't want something like back to the future. He wanted back to the future. <laughs> um, I knew how this project came to me um mr williams was just unable to do two movies at one time yeah and and so i was i have to say incredibly honored to even be considered um because i was aware of the fact that you know had that schedule been slightly different um mr williams would have done both films and it It would have, you know, been another of those great collaborations, Mm. Um, but it wasn't working out that way. Um, I did mention something to Mr. Spielberg as he was walking me over to a screen, an editing room to see the movie for the first time. Um, And I said something about, you know, this was this was going to be big. (laughs) having to to um to do this and he literally kind of gave me a little tap on my arm he was walking next to me it's kind of like don't worry you just do (laughs) you just do your what you do and and all will be well
3: yeah
1: and There were incredible things that happened then. Steven got off on a, he went off on a a plane to New York and started prepping and shooting his movie. I went to work and at some point, I don't know, five or six weeks later, we had a session. We had it at Sony. It was with a full orchestra. And I knew that mr spielberg and mr williams had a way they work together you know mr williams has an office in the building and he's a masterful pianist and he can play a cue to picture live with mr <laughs> spielberg sitting next to him and just before um we're supposed to, to have this session i got a I got a a, a communication from, from the office saying, you know, um, Mr. Spielberg wants to know if he'll be getting, you know, piano sketches or all this. And I had to write a very kind of, for me, it was a difficult email.
3: Mm.
1: And I had to, I had to say, you know, literally dear Steven, I know how you've, um, worked with Mr. Williams, you know, I can't do that. And I said, and i i I can do mock-ups of of certain things, but some of these things, for the time frame, there's no other way for me to show it to you than to show it to you. And he was just, again, so loving and supportive. It's mm. like, I'll see you on the day. I'm really excited about it. So here's the day we're going to do this big session. And, you know, Stephen sits eight feet away from where you are on the podium. He (laughs) loves to be in the room. So there he is. Right. And so I'm thinking, oh, God. okay. so one of the things I did um, was the fanfare. That happens early on. I think it's when we find our first key. And so I go, okay, everybody take out, you know, 1M4, whatever it is. Steven's sitting there. And so I'm up on the podium and I give a downbeat and it's like, yum. And they play. And it's like, and Steven gets off his chair and he goes, sold. (laughs) (laughs) It was his first his first cri- criticism, and it was, you know, I, I, I know that he was taking care of me through all of this. He knew how difficult potentially this was because as you were saying earlier, not many folks have had a chance to, to work with him as a director. It's always been Mr. Williams. So, if I may elaborate one moment, I think you'll enjoy this. Yes. Um, so, I get a call. I don't know if it was our first day of real scoring now or the second day, but I get a I get a, a text, or it, I, I it, it could have been a text. It could have been a FaceTime because S- Stephen constantly was FaceTiming. That's how we talk. Um, But but I think this was a this was an email and he said he said, Al, um, Johnny wants to know if it's okay to visit. (laughs) So so I'm like, uh, please tell Mr. Williams he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So, you know, um, the next day we're in the studio. We had started rehearsing. And I'm up there. Steven's always in his place, eight feet away. And you know, a lot of the time he's videoing the orchestra. And you know, he's having a great time always. But now it's serious. We're like going through the movie. So I'm rehearsing, and all of a sudden, I start to see the orchestras like it's like they're distracted. I don't know what's going on, but, you know, they're kind of looking out, looking, and then they're back playing, and then they're looking, and I I go, ho, 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 you know, and I turn around, and I'm looking through the glass in the control room, and standing in there is Mr. Williams, (laughs) and it's like, okay, guys, I get it. Now, this orchestra has played with with him their entire life, and they adore him, and so... I think at that point I said to the orchestra just when I thought I couldn't get any more nervous. <laughs> so we pause. Mr. Williams walks through the, uh, the the door and I go over to him and he's just lovely as always. And he holds my hand and he goes, he goes, Alan, thank you so much for letting me come visit today. He said, you know, I haven't been to anyone else's session in 35 years. And he said, said, I've always wanted to hear what this room sounded like when someone else was making the noise. (laughs) And then he proceeded to walk over and sit down next to Stephen. So now I have the two of them there, for the next hour, um, while I'm I'm carrying on, I mean it was the most magnificent, you know, experience to to just be part of that. Um, I, I mean, fantastic, and all the way then through the dub, through the whole making of the film, mm. they both of those gentlemen were just amazingly uh, supportive and great. So. Uh, Yeah, but it was an experience of a lifetime, for sure.
0: Wow. I think I would have forgotten everything uh, I knew about conducting in that
1: (laughs) (laughs) that five minutes. Hey, if you you prepare and you do your job, you just go do your job. It really (laughs) works out that way. It was great. It was a lot of of fun.
2: Amazing. That is fantastic. Um, One of the things that I miss about movies from a few decades ago is... The opening credit sequence. You don't really see many opening credit sequences anymore. Right. And right. part of the reason why opening credit sequences are great is because it allows the composer to establish that connection with the audience. It's just visuals and the music. I think of uh, Batman and Danny Elfman and what he did, for instance. Right. Um, right. Do you sort of miss that nowadays? As I said, we don't really get many opening credit sequences. We don't get that opportunity for composers to just immediately. Do that
1: right it um it's interesting in a way bob zemeckis has never been big on certain kinds of traditional opening title sequences so you know um i didn't get a chance to do a lot of that with him you know again it's it's almost like certainly you know the james bond consciousness um, they brought title sequence to a with thing unto itself, mm. and when you would wait for the next Bond movie to come out back in the day, the title sequence was like its own movie, and that was fun. Um, you know, as we've evolved, and and you know, and we will e continue to evolve. That whole idea could come back. It it is it is an interesting um, place to set a certain kind of tone, promise a certain kind of storytelling.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think a lot of filmmakers, you know, they've moved away from that. They don't want to reveal um, that kind of content before The narrative begins. Um, It's all it's all style and storytelling. Um, It could come back, and all of a sudden, everybody could be doing main title sequences again. Yay! (laughs) Yeah, no, it really could. For instance, um, I think we've gone through a a a a long period where there was a kind of aversion to a theme, to a movie Mm -hmm. theme, Mm -hmm. where filmmakers didn't necessarily want an identifiable theme, they wanted more of an atmospheric sense, so that music was always really, you know, kind of distant, and not ever kind of leading, or commenting, or any of that. And that's fine, too. That's a style of storytelling. I do know when, um, when I was hired to do the Avengers, the first Avengers, that was one of the first things that was said to me is, we want a theme for this movie. And they were very clear, that was Kevin Feige and Joss Whedon. They they were very clear about that. We're not looking for something atmospheric. We're not looking, we want a, an orchestra, we want this, big theme for our movie so you know that's more of that could come back with time um but you know it's a it's a it's a stylistic thing Mm. and things come in and out of favor we've seen that you know forever so Maybe it'll be back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mentioned Predator right back at the beginning of, uh, of the introduction. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a movie with a, with a credit sequence. That's a movie where you're totally. establishing the theme right from the off.
1: Totally. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's introducing characters. It's mm. setting environment. We certainly set up the tone, you know. If there's anything about that movie and about that score, it has to do with muscle. And and so, you know, we we definitely flexed our way through Predator and and we had to because Arnold was a big presence and there wasn't a lot of dialogue in that movie. Yeah. You know, but but it was about communicating that kind of power and muscle. I mean, the whole culmination of the movie was a a cage fight, basically. Mono yeah. a mano, you know? And so th- hopefully that's what we were communicating in that first opening couple of bars, um, you know, for that main title.
0: Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I've got to go, Alan, but you mentioned um you mentioned obviously uh, doing the first Avengers and then Infinity War and Endgame. Mm-hmm. The odd one out obviously is Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. Can you you talk about what happened there? Was that something, was it ever offered to you or or was that something where they they decided to move in another direction? I'm
1: thinking back that it it may have been offered to me, but I'm thinking that there was the decision to quickly move in another direction. I don't really know the inner workings of that. I know that I was um, having communications with Joss Whedon Prior to finding out that it had gone in a different direction, we had been communicating. He had talked about, you know, how how great it was, the experience on the first one. We were looking forward to doing it. And um, one day I got it. Sandra said, I just got a call from my sister in Florida, in Jacksonville, and she just read an article that someone else had been hired to do the next Avengers film. I had never heard that oh, wow. that had happened. Um, and look, my feeling about all of this, and, and I mean all of this, filmmakers, studios, filmmakers, you know, producers, directors, they are under insane amounts of pressure and they just want something to be successful. They really do. And they make the best best decisions they can. Um, And so I I just chalk that whole thing up to whatever the reasons were. And I was not on the inside of that. That would be a conversation you would have to have with Marvel and the director. Um, But whatever it it was, the decision was that they're going to, go in a different direction. And they did. I, I didn't. I mean, I was disappointed. I would have loved to have done that. Mm. Um, but I never felt like insulted or, you know, any, any of that. It's like, hey, these, you know, these folks, it's their money. It's their movie. They're trying to do make the best decision they can. This was one of them. Maybe they'll be right. Maybe they won't. But, you know, that's kind of how I walked away from that. I have to say it was incredible um, to be invited back. That was I remember when that call came, Sandra and I were giddy um, (laughs) that that phone call had had come in. um, and, And because it was the next three and a half years of my life. Uh, yeah. You know, because the call I got was from Mr. Feige um, asking me to join them for the next two Avengers films. <laughs> not, he, he, I remember he said, I'm not calling to ask you to do a movie. I'm calling to ask you to do two movies. <laughs> and so they asked me to do Infinity War and Endgame in the same phone call which was now three and a half to four years of, of my life. So it was yeah. fantastic. And what a great experience with, the, with the, the Russo brothers and Kevin. I mean, it was just magic.
0: And you had worked back-to-back as well on uh, Back to the Future 2 and 3. Yes. But this, was, this was on a much bigger scale. Uh, but that, that, yes. that's a fun little back-to-back, not little, that's a fun back-to-back um, <laughs> sequence of scores yeah. as well.
1: Exactly. And there are unique challenges that happen in that situation. I remember when I was recording the score for Back to the Future 2, Bob was up in gold country shooting Back to the Future 3. And I would be in in the studio, probably Todd A.O., and after we finished recording, I'd be driven to Burbank Airport and they'd stick me on a King Air or a Citation jet and fly me up to this little airport. I think it was Columbia, California. And they'd drive me and I'd sit there and have a hamburger with Bob on the dinner break and we'd play him the cues for the day. And then they'd drive me back they drive me back to the airport, I'd get on the plane, land in Burbank, they'd drive me to the hotel, I'd be in the studio all day the next day, they'd take me to the airport, (laughs) you know? So it's crazy. Infinity War um, wasn't quite like that, but there was clearly this feeling of, even through Infinity War, we're already working on endgame in some way. We're already, you know, involved in the future of all this because I had to know. I had to know where this was all going. So I had the context f- for all of it. Mm. So it was wild. Amazing. Incredible, though, to get a chance. And, you know, the, the, the other thing is to have an opportunity to work with a magnificent orchestra like that, playing stuff you wrote um, and hearing it like the portals. I mean, those people sat there and did that, and they just do that. It's breathtaking <laughs> that people – have refined their artistry to the point that, you know, and it sounded like that the first time they played it. Every <laughs> cue in all of those movies basically sound sounded the way they did after take three on take one. It, it, these folks never having seen any of the music, you know, just, they just walk in and do it. It's, it's breathtaking.
2: I was only going to add to that uh, Age of Ultron uh, discussion in that I'm not sure if you've spoken to Danny Elfman uh, in the years since, but he sort of made a point of uh, making sure that your Avengers team was yeah. in Age of Ultron.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you know, I um, I, I did not I've never spoken to Danny about it. Um, you know, I have a, a story about Danny. That goes back many, many years. When my child was two years old, he was diagnosed with um, type 1 juvenile diabetes. And after the shock of all that, my wife and I decided we should try to do some fundraising to help find the cure. And the idea was let's do an evening of filmmakers and their composers. And so I reached out to. Dave Grusen, Sydney Pollack, um, I was there with Bob Zemeckis. We had a seventy-piece orchestra that night, and we had um, dailies, basically, of Forrest Gump. And I had just started to write for it. We did some of that. Dave Newman was there that night. Um, Danny was there that night, and I will never forget it because my son who is now four years old, his favorite film in the world was Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> and so Danny agreed to come and do this evening with us. And so Danny comes out on stage. We have a 70 piece orchestra. We're in like the Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. And he, he, he calls my son down to ringside. <laughs> so my son is on his mom's lap and Danny gets on his knees and sings Jack, Jack's Lament to my son. Wow. So forever and ever, Danny Elfman will have the most special uh of places in our hearts. So Dan Danny's a, you know, he's a magnificent artist. Magnificent human being, I feel he would always do whatever was appropriate and the right thing. And for me, Danny can never make a mistake.
3: He's
0: oh my God!
1: Spectacular!
0: That's beautiful. That's a beautiful. I'm sorry. What, what, did you, what age is your son now? You said
1: he's now. My son is thirty one. Thirty one. Wow. wow. Yeah, and he's doing well, which is a big deal for folks with diabetes. It's a very difficult. Life they lead on a yeah. daily on a daily basis. It's it's very difficult. So
0: I, I have to ask one last question, sure. which is while we're talking about great lost Sylvester scores that never were, yeah, were you ever working on Bob Smecker's Yellow Submarine? Because I feel that's one of the great lost movies of the last couple of decades.
1: Um, I was not, and I was. Um, yeah and but here i'll elaborate okay at one point bob needed to really demonstrate what he was talking about and so he did he did a, a a big day at sony and um he had a i guess these folks were the most famous tribute band to do beatles material And he was shooting mocap. And so I was there with him for the day doing all this. And I remember Rick Carter was there all day, Uh his art director, Um, and they put together something like a seven minute reel, which was all the cinematic techniques Bob was gonna use to do this. And apparently for whatever reason, the whole project was shut down. So we never got to the next step. I never got to actually working on, uh, on the film, Uh, the whole thing, you know, before any of that even happened, it was going to be very expensive to make that film. And um, what I had heard was that the studio really loved this five or seven minute reel, but for whatever reason again i was not privy to that information they decided not to to go on with the project so i you know i i was getting ready to do whatever i was (laughs) by the way i mean whatever i would be called upon to do for bob and you know my my standing position with bob is you know first of all i never assume he's going to call me ever i'm always thrilled You know, the day he says, hey, I need you to put a little time away for me in the spring. I literally as soon as I'm not with him, I call Sandra and I go, Bob just asked me to do his next movie. (laughs) That's after 35 years. I'm still all at Twitter when (laughs) I'm invited. I never assume. And the other thing is I'll do whatever he wants. And that's it you know, if he, whatever he wants, I'm, I'm in. He has, he has been my mentor. He has changed my life, my family's life forever. He's whatever he wants. So, (laughs) so that's how that works.
0: And no wonder Alan, because uh, from the sound of things, he picks up the tab for all those lunches that you guys have.
1: (laughs) Hey, not always, not always. I kick in (laughs) with those. Yes. No, those, he did pick up the tab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the BTTF musical. Yeah, no, he was buying lunch. B-L-T-T-F, buying lunch. BLTTF,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: what, what is it? BTTFTM. That's it. BTTFTM. <laughs> uh, musical. Indeed. Oh, God, Grace. It's been so great talking to you guys. And likewise. You know? Alan, likewise. it's been an
0: absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for so much for your time.
1: All right. You guys have a great evening, right? Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. indeed. Yes, indeed. Time for it's some an fun. It's evening. All right. It's so yeah. great talking to you Cheers, Alan. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: So that was Alan Silvestri. What a joy that was and what a gent he was. I hope you guys had as much fun listening to that as Amon and I did recording it. And if you want more Silvestri, then I can heartily recommend his appearance on Edith Bowman's fantastic Soundtracking Podcast, and then you can follow that up with a deep dive into his back catalogue, which is available, of course, on Spotify and Apple Music and anywhere that you can get music, pretty much. The Back to the Future, the musical event will be on YouTube, the BFI's YouTube channel, on Thursday, April 29th at 7pm. And if you miss it, don't worry, it will be available to watch thereafter. Right, that is it from me, I am off to listen to Portals again, for about the millionth time. Thanks for listening, see you next time, bye.